This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. I'm at Glasson Dock, which is a port village on the mouth of the River Loon in Lancashire. There's a lot of energy about it. It's a working port, I guess one of Britain's smallest working ports. But there's a darker side to it, a shameful history that not many people know about. There's another thing. I really love this place, but it makes me feel sad too because my best friend died here and I think of him in an odd way tied up with the landscape. So the story I'm telling on Open Country today isn't an entirely happy one, but there are bright points of light too, I hope and the dark side of the loon. I grew up on the edge of a big city where there was a different kind of landscape, but there wasn't a word for it, and there wasn't a way of describing that kind of landscape. And I knew that you could find that here if you go in the other direction, vaguely west, towards the sea and Sunderland Point, where things get a lot more interesting, I think, a lot more indeterminate, a lot more post-industrial. Although saying that, a couple of centuries ago, there would have been industry here there were mills which are now flats over on that bank of, of the river it is all a post-industrial landscape really which just to encouraged to see it through a romantic filter i think i'm at the crooker loon which is this wonderful viewpoint up the river loon where in 1860 1817 turner came and painted the view up the river and it's this wonderful romantic view of what landscape should be Downriver is a different loon altogether. And I've come to the Crooker Loon to meet the Professor of Poetry, the presenter of Radio 4's Echo Chamber, and local resident, Mr Paul Farley, who has written about landscape in a different way, in a new way. So Turner and, and Thomas Gray came here and invented, if you like, the idea of a romantic landscape, because before that mountains were bleak, horrible places that you wanted to avoid. Yeah, I mean, the Lake District famously was... Um, people like Daniel Defoe on his tour of, of Great Britain would have given it a bit of a wide berth. It was seen as a place which was inhospitable, which was difficult terrain. And then the Romantics came along and just, just materially altered the way we view landscape and think about landscape. And I think that's happened again in the last couple of decades. And that's looking the other way. That's looking towards the post-industrial, the afterwards that we're all living in. Yeah. And it's a landscape of speed. It's a landscape that you often see from a car. It's verges. It's the backs of houses from a train. And you're not encouraged to look at it closely. You're not encouraged to stop and think about it. It's a blur. You know, it's untranslated landscape. It's just stuff that passes by out the periphery of your vision. And the loon is rich. There are rich edgelands, especially if we walk in that direction westwards towards the sea. Like, for example, the old landfill site... Yeah, salt air. When I first came to Lancaster, there was this huge landfill site, which is kind of always covered in gulls. Yeah. You could hear it. You could hear the yeah, klaxons yeah. of the kind of tippers. You could see this kind of corona of gulls that were kind of around it all day long. And you could smell it, of course, depending on which way the wind was blowing. It was 50, roughly 50 years old, and they decided to cap it, to kind of turf over it. And if you go there now, there are horses grazing on it. It just looks like a mound, you know. But every now and then you'll see a pipe coming up from the ground. 
which are is, is select release gas because it's almost yeah. like it's this living thing in the earth, you know, that still hasn't quite settled down. It's got this kind of unfinished business, and it leeches and it oozes, and things are kind of allowed to escape from it. It's wonderful, and I, I was also taken by the the idea of the beginning of that landfill would have been scrapings from the tea times of Clement Attlee's government. You know, there's, there's <laughs> stuff that, that that's that old at the bottom of it. You just sometimes need to look a few degrees out of whack or be forced to, and it all becomes a stranger, richer, more interesting place, wherever you are, I think. <laughs> I've come to the Lancaster co-housing project next to the River Loon, down from the Crooker Loon. The, the river's wide and it's, it's quite bubbly, but, you know, you could probably swim in it or fish in it, but sometimes the river turns around and bites those who live by its banks. So this is both the future of maybe how people might live, but also a terrifying reminder of what nature can do to people who don't take enough care with it. Fiona Frank is one of the people who set up the Lancaster co-housing project. A while ago, 10 years ago I think, a group of friends got together in Lancaster and decided they wanted to live in a different way. And they wanted to live with their friends in a better way for the planet. We ended up building 41 houses. We've sold all the houses when we first opened, which was, I think we moved in four and a half years ago, something like that. And here we all are. So it's called an intentional community. Co-housing, like you say, the way of the future. We have the use of Holton Mill so people don't have to go to work. They can work next door. We have super fast broadband so they can work from home. We have an email list so people can ask for things. Are you going into town? Will you get my shopping? We have a car club with a website so you know where all the cars are going and you can share lifts. It works. When I first came here, I came with our mutual friend, Chaz Ambler. Mm -hmm. And he took me to... There's a hall where there was some dancing going on, but it was country dancing, so I wouldn't let Chaz take me in <laughs> in case I got involved in any way. That would have been my birthday party. Oh, God, was it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a communal kitchen as well, or...? Yeah, we've got a common a sort of house. dining room, a common we've, house. We all have a house one size smaller than the house that you normally have in real life because you don't need a guest bedroom because we've got guest bedrooms. You don't need an office because we've got offices. You don't need a place to have parties because we've got a place to have parties. You don't need a place to have dinner parties because we've got a place to have dinner parties. It's called the common house and it's a place with a beautiful kitchen where we take it in turns once a month to cook for everybody else. So it's, it's kind of idyllic and modern and we're next to the banks of the lovely River Loon. The lovely, calm, low, very gentle River Loon. <laughs> <laughs> we always knew there'd be a flood sometime. We were told that we could build them on an environment agency, one in a hundred year level. And one of our members said, no, you must build them to the one in a thousand year level, which was lucky, really. Because? On the 5th of December 2015... The one in 1,000 year event. Yes, unfortunately it happened three years after we moved in. Yeah. It was higher, I think three metres higher than it had ever been. So Most did you not have any energy during this flood? Were you in darkness? Oh, that, no, when the hydro doesn't work, we still get, normally we get ordinary grid energy. Lancaster itself was cut off for three days. Pretty exciting. So nobody in this area had any power for three days except those that had generators. The third terrace, it came up to our decking, so it didn't come up to the houses at all. The fourth terrace, which is a little bit lower, it lapped around the houses. Were you and here? What was it like, was watching here? it come up and come up? 
It's horrific. I was on my decking and I just had this terrible vision of a child or a dog whooshing down the river, as fast as anything, whooshing down the river and would have been lashed to pieces on that bridge. And as far as I heard, nobody was drowned in the river at all. So it was terrifying. But also, it was lovely because we are a community and everyone just went to the common house, sat in there. One person had a really old mobile phone that had one bar of signal. We all took it in turns, phoning our mums to say we were all right. Somebody else had a gas canister thing and we made tea for everybody. So living in the community for that sort of thing is brilliant. Do I fancy living here? Well, they wouldn't have me. Because a bit like my old friend Chaz, I'm a disgusting pig. My wife suffers enough. Imagine a huge community of 40 people going, why doesn't he ever, isn't it his turn to clean the loos? No, I wouldn't be very good at it. I, I like the idea, but that's why I wouldn't live here, because they wouldn't have me if they had any sense. The merchants of Lancaster did have interests and shares in ships that would have sailed across to Africa and the West Indies and they would have brought back from the West Indies merchandise that they could sell here in Lancaster and make quite a large profit on. So they would invest in ships, they will get money from their shares in the slaves that were taken on that ship and then they will get money as well from the goods that they brought back from the West Indies. So it helped Lancaster as a city to build the houses that you can see and the, the buildings, and it became rather wealthy. I've come to the Lancaster Maritime Museum on St George's Quay in Lancaster, where I'm talking to Anthea Perkis from the museum. So do you think the stuff about slavery in Lancaster has gathered steam? You know, you're saying, OK, there were traders, but lots of people will say, oh, you know, he was a slave and slaves mm. came here... And, has it become inflated with time? I think it hasn't necessarily become inflated. I think it's become more widely acknowledged that Lancaster had a role in this part of our history. At the time that the abolitionists were looking into trying to get slavery abolished, Lancaster as a port had, had diminished to the point where a lot of the trade was done from Liverpool instead. So when the abolitionists were touring around Britain trying to find out what was happening and, and where the main activity was taking place, Lancaster kind of fell under their radar because the activity had diminished to a degree that it wasn't thought that it was an important part of it. And it's only in recent years that the full extent of the traders who worked and lived here has come to light, really, for public knowledge. So, so it's almost like a, a blind. It's almost like it's at arm's length. It's almost like it was sort of deniable in a way. Unless you went to the West Indies and lived on the plantation or were a plantation owner, you, you wouldn't, as a Lancaster citizen, have had any contact with any part of the process apart from when you got paid at the end of a apart successful voyage. Yeah. I always thought it was a, a bit of a rubbish port, Lancaster. I could never imagine how big boats would get up here. It's, it's not navigable, really, the river anymore, is it? Today, no. Very small boats can navigate the river. Because the river silted up and it wasn't used anymore, it kind of became protected in a way. and Nothing was taken down to make new warehouses because it wasn't used anymore. They just stayed as they were. It's, it's like... Um, it's just held in time, as it, as it were. So all of the warehouses are as you would have seen them um, in, in the heyday of Lancaster. 
there's something about this landscape, this particular landscape, the mouth, the river Loon. The landscape is deeply personal to me. Not only did I live and love in Lancaster, but I worked for 20 years with a musician called Chaz Ambler. And we went to festivals and clubs and we had great fun together for 20 years. And then he got esophageal cancer and died over the course of about a year. And I was coming up to be part of the nursing team. And somehow in that, this landscape has become, for me, wrapped up in my memories of Chaz. Wrapped up in all the good times we had, but the sadness of his passing as well. And the loss of my friend and the grief which I still feel. Dear old Chaz. He was rubbish, but I loved him. <laughs> oh. There was no one like old Chaz. On the festival circuit, very well known, played loads of gigs. You would never have him in your house. All my girlfriends ever would ban him. He lived in absolute total squalor. Once a policeman came to his house, kicked in the door and said, what are you doing here? And Chaz said, this is my house, I own it. He was a fantastic musician, a wonderful bloke, rude, outrageous, filthy, dirty, and I loved him more than I've loved anyone, really. He was my best mate. And somehow this landscape constantly evokes this love I felt for this disgusting old tramp. <laughs> so Chaz, for the last nine weeks of his life, came to live with Michelle Stevenson and her family, Shell, as she's called, in Glasson Dock. And he came to Glasson to die. But he came to Glasson to die surrounded by friends, surrounded by a community of friends who loved him and washed him and <laughs> looked after him. And it was, it was a beautiful death, actually. I think he died well. I met you when you took Chaz in to come and live here in Glasson. Yeah. I say to live here. Yeah. To yeah. die here, really. He did. He did come to die here. I'm quite privileged to have him come live here for the last couple of months of his life. And you looked after him, you bathed him, because you're a nurse. I am. Yeah, I just wanted to, to be there for him, really, and to look after him, as he might like to be looked after and be amongst friends and allow him to be himself, really, as well. He had his own space if he wanted it. And... But when you say be himself, I, I can say this because I was one of his oldest friends and I played with him for 20 years. Himselfness would be things like extreme rudeness, <laughs> smelly old tramp. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. Surely not. He was a character, wasn't he? <laughs> He was a very, he was a character, and I think nothing was going to be very conventional about Chaz's life, really. No. Was it? No, it wasn't. But you had an endless procession of, I think the word is weirdos. <laughs> and people and musicians and... <laughs> Actors and comedians and old hippies. They just sort of trooped through your house. They did, and they were very generous as well. With, they also spent time with us and my daughter... Aww. Really, you know, she said she missed the company. It kind of went quiet after Chaz had gone and, and you don't really pass through Glass and Docks. So we don't get that many visitors, really, unless you invite them. 
You've got the Forest of Bowland behind us. You've got the Lake District over there. We're surrounded by water and estuaries. And Chaz, he wasn't the least bit interested, was he? No. <laughs> he likes urban decay, did Chaz. Yeah. Big fan of concrete. I remember that time so vividly. I even wrote a poem. Oh, lovely. I know it's not lovely. It's a very bad thing. <laughs> I, I, I wrote a couple of poems about this place and death, but that's wrong, isn't it? Life carries on. It does. There's death and there's life. It's bloody dogs as well. <laughs> T- to me, it's one of the most. I'm gonna, I'm gonna crack up again, shall? It's one of the most generous things that a friend has ever done for somebody else. I just thought it was so beautiful. And so again, this landscape isn't just about sadness, I suppose, but it's also about that tremendous act of friendship that you did. When I come down that road, I think about Chaz, but I think about you and what you did. Oh, it was good for me too, I think. And I think it helped me come to terms with losing such a big part of our community anyway. Chaz was big, I'd known him quite a long time and he was at the heart of everything really. And it wasn't until he was dying that we realised just how much of a friend Chaz actually was. He was one of the one of the last visitors, really. Chaz would come around and visit people and, and he did talk a lot, but he also listened. If he chose to be your friend, he didn't choose to be Chaz's friend. Chaz chose you as his friend, and and if he did, that was quite special, really. He, he truly was a friend and a gentleman when it mattered. Yeah. You know, he, he was a good friend. It was good to spend that time with him. How far away is Glasson Dock? I would say it looks as though it's half a mile, but I would say it's about two miles, really, or about, well, you know... Mile and a half. I thought it breaks my heart with how lovely it is. You can only get to it at low tide. We cut off twice a day. The longest is four hours each tide, depending on the height of the tide. Yeah. So I've come to Sunderland Point to meet Margaret Owen that stands out in the loon hmm. fishing for salmon. Yes, I do. I stand with a 18-foot have beam on the back of my back. I carry it down to the water. A have beam? It's a have beam. It's 18 foot 6. It looks like, visually, a cut-down goalpost, waist-high, with a huge net on. So you carry it down on your back, you drop it in front of you and walk the net. So you end up with part of the net on one side and part on the other. And you stand there in the river, hoping to catch a salmon. And some of these salmon creep past you like so quietly they barely touch your leg and whoosh you have to lift the beam and they're fighting to get out and I'm fighting to catch it other times it can hit you so hard it's like a rocket smacking your leg nearly bowling you over and you're fighting again for this fish and it's fighting to get out the adrenaline rush is unbelievable as old as I am I can't think I will ever give this up you stand in the middle of the river doing this I stand in the middle of the river for the minimum of four hours each four time. Four hours. And then turn round, do the flood for about an hour and a half, twice a day or night. I see things when I'm stood in that river in the dark that will take your breath away. Go on, tell me. Tell me what you see out there. Well, for instance, last year I was stood in the river and there was a big acker. We call it an acker when there's a fish coming towards you. You see this V coming down. And I thought, oh, my goodness me, this. Am I going to stand in this and catch this? It's going to be too big. And then it disappeared. And I turned round and there was an otter sat on the back of my neck. No. Looking at, yes, there was. Sat just looking at me as though saying, what are you doing down here? I'm after my dinner. I thought, you've just frightened my fish away. 
I was stood there one day and I thought, oh, it was so, it was so beautiful. The, the sky wasn't just red, it was blood red. And there'd been a rainbow in the sky, not an ordinary one, like a flat one. You see all the peculiar things. And I turned round and there was about 24 baby fluffy shell ducks sat on the back of my neck. <laughs> right. In August, the, the river loon is full of phosphorescence. And phosphorescence makes the river sparkle like Disneyland. Really? It's not phosphorescence, it's really? phosphorescence and like the green that the children wear on carnivals when they break these things and put round the neck. You come out and you're walking up up along on the beach and every time you put your foot down every sparkle of water is green fluorescent yeah but why don't you fall over i, I mean it's full of morecambe bay is you know it's well yeah. known for quicksand yeah. and, and and the road across to sunderland yeah. says yeah. beware of quicksand yeah but how come you don't get sucked under or... i have been in once and had the net round and had to be rescued that was a long time ago i went in after a a really bad storm and she'd swept the bank away and I didn't know and I tottered in, put the net down, stepped back and disappeared <sighs> and the net got wrapped round my legs and away down the river I went yeah. but I was lucky because another haver down by the lighthouse who couldn't swim, a man called Dick Worthington, waded out up to his neck and rescued me, I was unconscious by now so I didn't know and he caught me with his, his have beam but I was in the next day, I'll tell you. To do the job I do, you've got to be happy in your own skin. You've got to be comfortable with yourself and not mind standing there for four hours as still as you possibly can. Yeah. I find it very, very relaxing. So we've crossed Sunderland, the spit of Sunderland Point and come to the other side. And, and here at last is the sea. There's Morecambe Bay. We've reached the end of the loon. To my immediate right, looking like something a lunatic five-year-old would build in Lego, Heesham Nuclear Power Station. To my left, the lighthouse at the spit of Sunderland Point. In front, the sea, Morecambe Bay, across salt marshes. And I'm no birder, but that looks like two very funny, sticky-up, long-necky birds there. <laughs> I think they're swans. Oh, they're swans. That's anticlimactic. <laughs> We've come about as far as we can. I've got one more thing to do, really. We've got to go and find Sambo's grave here at the mouth of the loon. And it's just a very simple cross, surrounded by a little dry stone wall. And Sambo was supposed to have been a black servant of a sea captain who pulled in at Sunderland Point in 1736 and had to go to Manchester and left his servant here at Sunderland Point in the inn. He didn't know where his master had gone and he died of a broken heart. Don't know if that's true. And they've kept this cross for 300 years. And they've looked after Sambo's grave and people come here from all over the world to put a pebble down. It's made me feel melancholy, this landscape. And yet, when you meet Margaret, what can you do but feel full of joy? She's kind of lifted my spirit. It's almost like the end of the grieving process for, for the loss of my friend coming here and thinking, yeah, there is hope, there's renewal. The tide goes out but the tide comes back in. And when the tide comes back in, 
It's full of salmon. We're here in this fantastic moment in the pouring rain at Sambo's grave on Sunderland Point. <laughs> That's a Furby, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't matter how lovely life is, there's always something anticlimactic 